Hey friends, welcome to the official podcast of Oklahoma Next Gen Leaders. This podcast exists to inspire, encourage, and ignite your kingdom purpose while equipping you to reach your potential for a global harvest. Be sure to follow us on social media and share this podcast with your friends so they can be encouraged. On today's episode, Eric Monsabias, executive pastor of The Church Today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a fourth-year psychiatry resident, talks to us about the difficult but important topic of mental health, and using depression as the basis of his discussion gives us practical ways to approach mental health. You don't want to go anywhere, so let's get into today's episode. Bias here. I am excited to have the opportunity to talk with you guys about the ever increasingly important topic of mental health. First off, though, I do want to give honor to Brother and Sister Hughes, as well as their team for the amazing work that they are doing and for being willing to address tough topics like mental health um, to help better equip the next generation of leaders. A little background information about myself I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I am currently living in Tulsa and serving as the executive pastor at the church today. I'm also a psychiatry resident. What that means is that essentially I have finished up medical school and I'm doing my training in the field of my choice, which is psychiatry. Psychiatry is a four-year program and I am currently on the last year of that. So I will be board certified coming in September and very excited about that. Couple disclaimers as well. Before we get started, I am not entering into a professional physician relationship with anyone today. Always see your doctor before making any changes to your treatment plan. And the medical information that I provide is really just meant for educational purposes, not intended to be specific medical advice for you today. Also, please know that if anything I say today is in contradiction to what your pastor teaches, he's right and I'm wrong, and that's it. Now, I know that historically, mental health has been a difficult conversation for the church. There's a lot of opinions out there and a lot of ideas regarding the nature and the solutions for these issues. So it's my hope today that I can help provide some clarity to help equip you guys with some practical ways to approach mental health. Now, when we talk about mental health, that is a really broad category. There are some 300 different disorders in that category. So what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to focus on depression, and then we'll kind of use that as the basis for better understanding mental health as well as ways we can approach it. In the future, I do plan on developing more topics, especially areas of like trauma, anxiety, and then some of the more difficult things like substance use and maybe some really acute, severe mental health disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. I think that'd be really beneficial for the church and for leaders within the church to better understand those topics and to be able to have practical ways to approach it. But today we'll, we'll focus on depression, that way we don't spend too long. And there are several things that I think that it's really important for the next generation of leaders of the church to know about that. And the very first thing that I think is important to know 
is that this is a serious problem. I think one of the best ways we can kind of understand that is through the stats, the numbers that are out there right now. If we look at mental health in general, we know that 21% of adults in the U.S. are experiencing some kind of mental illness. That's like 50 million people. If we look at major depressive disorder in particular, among adults, it's at an 8% rate, and that equals 21 million Americans that are dealing with major depressive disorder. And then if we actually look at young people between the ages of 12 to 17, 16% of them are dealing with major depression, and that's some 2.7 million people. So it's, it's very significant. Generation Z, which is by now the largest generation or soon to be, depending on what resource you look at, they've been called the depressed generation because the numbers are so high for them. They're actually about twice as likely as Americans over the age of 25 to battle depression and feelings of hopelessness. The other thing I think is important to keep in mind, my number two thing is that Christians are not immune to this. It'd be nice if we were, but unfortunately, when we look at the numbers, the percentage of Christians that deal with depression is less than the general population, but not by much. It's about 7.1%. But when you look at the number of Christians that there are in the U.S., that equals some 7.6 million Christians that are suffering from depression. The other thing that I think is important to know, number three, is that ministers are not immune to this. A recent survey from LifeWay Research found that nearly one in five pastors deal with depression to some degree. In the words of Mickey Mangum at Bot 2023, she says, it's real, it's prevalent, and chances are that it's in the room today. So listen, I know I know it's a lot to process. It may feel kind of heavy to hear those numbers, but I think we can all agree that the numbers are significant enough that they warrant the church's response and our attention. So I want, I want to kind of focus on that and how we can better understand and then how we can approach these things as well. So the number four thing that I think is important for the next generation of leaders to know is that the, the brain is an organ. And like any other organ, it can get sick. So just like the heart, just like the lungs, just like the kidneys can be diseased, so too can the brain. However, for some reason, we often see that people who have a disease of the brain are regarded differently. I think a lot of that is probably due to the fact that the disease process of the brain is it's difficult to understand. It's not easily visualized. Um, however, kind of as we've, we begin to advance, we've we moved along scientifically where we have a lot more technology out there and ways for us to better understand what's actually happening within the brain. But still, it's not something we can just readily see. We have to rely on a lot of advanced technology to better understand what's going on there. So what I want to do real quick is I want to kind of go just briefly through what the pathophysiology a major depressive disorder is. I'm not going to try to get too much into the weeds here because I don't want to bore you, but what I want to convey to you is that it is an actual disease process that's taking place within the body. Before I do that, though, I think it's, it's probably good to clarify what depression actually means from a medical perspective. When we see someone in the office and you know, they're reporting depression, we have a, a very wide differential that we go through. Probably one of the first things that we're thinking about is major depressive disorder. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And really what major depressive disorder is, it's when you have five or more symptoms 
that are pretty significant. Those include things like, of course, a depressed mood, decreased interest, decreased energy, feelings of guiltiness, worthlessness, problems concentrating, poor appetite, slowed movements, difficulties sleeping, or even on the very extreme end of things, suicidal thoughts. So people that are dealing with major depressive disorder will have at least five of those symptoms, and those will be present for two or more weeks that they're dealing with that. Now, the big thing with this is that it, these symptoms are so extreme that they will cause marked impairment in their everyday function. What depression is not is not when you're just feeling down or you're feeling upset, you're having a bad day. You, maybe you broke up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. That's sad, that's awful, but also it's not technically depression or Maybe you, you lost a pet or you may have even lost a loved one. Those things may lead to, de- to a major depressive episode, but they're not necessarily in and of themselves major depressive disorder. Rather, we're looking more to see if those symptoms that we talked about earlier persist for a while or if things begin to get worse. The reality is that we all go through rough, difficult times, sad times. If your dog passes away and you don't cry... I'm going to be a little worried about you, to be honest. We know that even Jesus, when his friend died, that he wept over that. So sadness and being upset and being down is a natural part of life, not necessarily something that always needs to be treated with therapy or medication, but it's kind of important to understand that threshold we're looking at. We want to make sure that this is a actual major depressive episode before we're taking those next steps and not just, you know, that someone is feeling down. Now, I think it is critical, though, for the church to realize that major depressive disorder, which I'll refer to MDD to make it quicker, is not something that people make up or fall into because they're weak. Rather, it's a result of a complex physiological process, much like any other disease of the body, high blood pressure, heart disease, lung disease. Um, We know that there are processes taking place within the body that are actually causing that, and the same is true for major depressive disorder, which is a disease of the brain. Now, the problem is, though, that we can't see it, right? Um, It's not quite as clear as just a broken bone or something like that. Depression is actually kind of the result of a cascade of, it involves genetic factors, environmental factors, inflammatory and endocrine responses. And all this kind of initiates structural and functional changes in the brain and in certain brain regions which results in dysfunction and neurogenesis. And then it kind of manifests as this constellation of symptoms that we call depression. Now, that's a lot of big words and big concepts there. So to simplify it, what a lot of times what people refer to is they say, well, I'm dealing with a chemical imbalance. And that's true to an extent. But to clarify as well, it's not as simple as saying, let's add a little bit of serotonin, let's add a little bit of norepinephrine, and you'll be fine. Um, The process is actually quite a bit more complex than that, unfortunately. But that kind of gives people a basis to be able to explain what's going on with them. We also know that major depressive disorder and other mood disorders are very much genetic tied. Not necessarily that you're you're absolutely going to have it if if your parents have it or somebody in your family has it, but rather you're more predisposed to possibly develop that disease if somebody else in your family has it. If we're looking at your parent, you have a 10 to 25% chance of having it if they have it. 
If we look at twin studies, which really lets us link and understand genetics better and how they relate to disease probability, when we look at monozygotic twins, which just means twins that have the same genetics, completely 100% the same genes, we know that there is, if one of them has it, the other one is 70 to 90% chance of having it as well. On the other hand, though, if we look at dizygotic twins, which means they have about 50% of the same genes, there is only a 16 to 35% chance that if one twin has it, the other one will. So you can kind of see that the predisposition to this disease is highly genetic. The other factors that come into play, though, are environmental factors that we deal with. And there are several environmental factors that can kind of trigger this genetic response or make you more likely to develop this disease as you grow up. And those are things like low self-esteem, history of trauma, low social support, substance use, and several other things that I won't fully go into. The point being, though, is that you know it's a complex process that's going on, but it is a very real disease process that's taking place. So this is a this is a medical diagnosis, is a medical problem that we has that myself as a physician I have to come at with um, the understanding of how it works and then to be able to treat it the best possible way that we can. Now, it is medical, but I also say that many of you are probably thinking, well, the Bible also talks about you know spiritual depression and dealing with depression, and you are, you are 100% correct there. The number five thing that I would like for next-gen leaders to know is that it can be spiritual as well. We look specifically at the Bible. There are actually some references to specific spirits that are involved with that. If we look at Isaiah 61 and 3, it talks about the spirit of heaviness. Other translations refer to that as the, the spirit of despair, or a faint spirit, or a spirit of weakness. And this really describes de- depression well. It's the spirit that comes in and just weighs heavy on a person. I and mean, it's like a weight that you can't get off. I've heard people describe it really as a sense of just utter hopelessness that's going on in their life. If we actually look at Isaiah 42 and 3, it talks about a a smoking flax there. And the word that's used, the transliterated Hebrew word that's used for smoking flax, keha, is actually the same word that's used for the spirit of heaviness. And I, I think that's important because the smoking flax is really referring to if you had like a lantern or a candle and it's burning, but then all of a sudden it gets blown out and all that's left is just that trail of smoke that's going on. Going into depression, it feels like they're all alone, they're in darkness, everything is hazy, just like that trail of smoke. Their purpose, their passion, their self-worth, their hope, their security, it all kind of feels like it's drifting away. And that's where the church has to come in and we have to be there as a support when people are going through just that horrible, horrible feeling. Another spirit that the Bible mentions specifically that I want to talk about is the spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1 and 7 talks about that. But the Bible also says in Proverbs 12 and 25 that anxiety in the heart of the man causes depression. And where that really ties into the spirit of fear is because it is fear that's the root of anxiety. So if you have this in your life and you just are dealing with this constant anxiety and there's no relief from it, ultimately we see that that leads to depression. I will say also, as a psychiatry resident, there, there have been several times where you know, I've been talking with people 
and you know we're going through all the medical stuff and we're but there's a sense that there, there's more, there's more going on as well. Um, you know, I'm in an academic setting, so I can't always act on that. Um, I can, of course, when I'm at church or when I'm a, away from my academic setting. But, but just to say that being in this and seeing thousands and thousands of patients, I know that there are times when I'm dealing with more than just the medical side, that there's actually probably a spiritual component going on there as well. Moving on, though, the number six thing that I want next-gen leaders to know about mental health is that just because it can be spiritual does not mean that it always is. I think it's important to not automatically equate mental health issues with demonic influence, oppression, or the on the extreme side, possession, because biblically speaking, this does not appear to be the most common presentation even when we're talking about possession in the Bible, that's usually where we have the most in-depth stories. And when we look at all the in-depth accounts that the Bible provides us with that, there's really only two out of the nine detailed accounts that actually deal with psychiatric symptoms. The other seven that are mentioned, I won't go through all the scriptures with you right now, but I'll kind of give you what they broadly cover. And when we look at it, there. Two times there is no specific symptomatology that's mentioned. One time there is divination that's mentioned. But the most common thing that we see when they're talking about someone possessed that was brought before Jesus or the disciples, the most common thing is other medical symptoms, not necessarily psychiatric symptoms. Most commonly we see blindness, muteness, deafness, epilepsy, or kyphosis, which is kind of where the, the back is bent over. And that's times four. So four times we see that, whereas we only see psychiatric symptoms twice. The two times that we do see psychiatric symptoms, one time is, is with Saul when he's becoming very paranoid. It's kind of a recurrent thing for him. And then we also see it with the demoniac of Gadara where he was demonstrating some really erratic symptoms that we would probably align to be more in the, in the psychiatric realm. This is not to say in any way that disease of the mind is not vulnerable to such attacks. On the contrary, a hurting mind is an attractive target for evil spirits because they're, they're opportunistic beings. But most cases, when we actually look at the Bible and we're looking through the detailed accounts, most cases really involved other forms of medical symptoms rather than psychiatric, um, which I think is really interesting just because of how we we tend to be predisposed when somebody walks into the church and they're just acting, you know, kind of bizarre, kind of different, we tend to be predisposed to assume that more so than we would with someone who's just coming in and is not looking physically well. The number seven thing, though, that I think next-gen leaders should know is that sometimes it can be both medical and it can be spiritual as well. And I've kind of seen this more in just my my personal life um, at the church. We actually had an instance here recently where someone who was dealing with just some horrible panic and you know just extreme anxiety that was going on. And this individual was brought to the to the church, and our leadership team gathered around them. It was a really cool opportunity for the church to be the church. But I'm talking with them, and like when I'm talking with the family, really I'm under. It, from what it sounds like to me, is a very classic case of a certain category of mental health disorder. 
so I'm, I'm kind of, that's kind of the track that I'm going down and like I'm giving them resources and talking with them. Of course, our team is gathered around and our pastor goes over there and he starts to pray. And as he's praying, he, he just kind of pauses and, and identifies that there's also, you know, a spirit of, of fear there as well. So we actually begin to pray and we begin to sing and the spirit of the Lord just came down that room. That spirit, I don't know, there was no, there was no possession. I don't think there was any oppression. Really, it was just a demonic probably influence that was going on at the time. And that demonic influence or that spiritual influence just had to leave. It had to go when there was rest. However, unfortunately, this person was not fully healed physically in that moment. Rather, they had to continue to engage in some treatment and that's really the continuation of what got them to more of a resolution of symptoms. But I think the point being there, though, just because we're identifying one aspect does not mean that the other one is not there as well. They may be in conjunction. Number eight thing that I think next-gen leaders should know is that as believers, we can distinguish. And this is probably the question that I get a lot. Like, how do I, how do you know? Like, they'll often ask me, like, how do you deal with all those demons and things that you're you're facing all the time i'm like well i'm really not facing them all the time probably not facing them the majority of the time but i've always given the answer you know if if we are suspecting that we're dealing with something like that then really we have to use the gift of the discerning of spirits and that really is the best answer that's the key answer and i think as i've kind of studied this out more there are some other components that we could utilize in conjunction with the discernment, but ultimately you're probably going to rely on that the most. And that's really how Jesus and his disciples operated. They op- There's at least 19 different times where people with spirits were brought before Jesus and his disciples. And each time that he encountered them um, or that his disciples encountered them, a lot of times we saw that it was not just that they brought him people who were dealing with some kind of spiritual issue but also at the same time they would bring people who were sick and what i find really interesting is that it does not seem that jesus or his disciples ever struggle with that they would cast out the spirits in jesus name and they would heal the sick in jesus name they just kind of knew the difference they could sense they could understand they were using the spirits to guide them to distinguish what was actually going on, and they were able to operate in that way. And that's really how you and I, I think, are led to operate. Now, if you're saying, man, I that's good, what else do you have for me? I do have a few other ways that I think could be beneficial and help with that. One way is the Spirit's reaction to being confronted with Jesus' presence. And this may be, this in the Scripture, obviously, it's directly Jesus being there, but this may be also them sensing Jesus in you and responding to that way. But we find in Mark 3, 9 through 12, that the spirits, when they encountered Jesus, they fell down before him and cried, you are the son of God. And then in Mark 1, 21 through 34, there's a man in Capernaum at the actual synagogue, and he cries out to Jesus as well. He declares who he is, and Jesus just tells him to be quiet and cast the, cast the spirit out. And then Mark 5, 1 through 20, there's a man with a demon who is walking amongst the tombs. That's the demoniac of Gadara. And he actually runs to Jesus. Um, and when he gets there, he worships him. But his request is this, that he not be tortured. So those are some responses. And just as a Christian, you may have those instances where they're responding to you because they sense that authority and that, 
that power that's within you. Another way that you can use along with the gifts of discerning of spirits is the features of the presentation. And what I mean by this is like how it how it looks and what's going on. Mark 9 is a good example of this where we find the young boy who was possessed and he was the demonstration of that was actually few things, but one of the things that was there was seizure-like activity that he was having. And of course, the disciples could not cast this out, so they went to Jesus, and the father's telling Jesus about it, and he tells him that he has these seizures, but these seizures take place only when he's around water or fire, and as a result of these seizures, he falls into those things and is hurt. So if you, if you know a little bit about seizure activity or epilepsy, some people may sense it coming on, some people may have triggers for it as well. However, usually it's not going to be specific things that could just hurt you. So they only around fire and only around water. That really indicates more of a malignant intent. Something else is going on there besides just a medical problem. Number four way that you can probably help to distinguish is usually a spirit is not seeking out help. And I think this is pretty important because most of the examples that we find in the Bible is that people are bringing these individuals to Jesus or his disciples. In fact, we see that six times in the Bible. Or the Spirit is harassing Jesus or his disciples. We see that mentioned twice. Or the Spirit is requesting not to be tortured by Jesus. We see that times one. They also may, we had times where they inadvertently came into contact with Jesus. And the, the one time we see that, they were crying out, you are the Son of God. And then there's one other time where Jesus identifies someone in torment and he actually calls them to come forward to him and that's where he, where he heals them. The rest of the scripture, though, talks about times where they're encountering these things. There's not a real clear indication of what's going on. Some of the, these interactions may be the human will that's remaining there, reaching out to Jesus or his disciples. But the point being that if somebody's walking up to you and they're saying, listen, here's what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with depression. I'm dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with trauma. Then most likely that's probably not going to be spiritual. Maybe. I'm not saying 100% never, but probably not. Um, because in the Bible, we don't see where these oppressed or possessed people came directly to him and said, like, here's what I'm dealing with. But however, when we look at like physical stuff, like people that were worried about leprosy or being blind, they were calling out to Jesus and letting him know what was going on with them. So I would, I would say if somebody's coming up to you, reaching out for help, you probably don't want to automatically assume that something else is going on. Number nine thing, really important, I think, for next-gen leaders to know is that it is okay to not be okay. This is a big thing that's kind of going around right now. And I think it's important. I think it's important that we engage in this as the church, as leaders, to be able to tell people that it's okay to not be okay. This concept is saving lives. We're able to let people know that, listen, we know these things are real. We know that they exist. And we want to be there for you no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're, you're going through. We've seen in the UPC specifically here recently that several influential leaders have been speaking out about their own things that they dealt with. Brother Carlton Kuhn, um, just an amazing leader, he actually has written an entire book about depression, and in it he details kind of the personal struggles he's dealt with. You know, for many years, just pretending to be okay was the norm. 
But like any disease that is ignored for too long, the resulting mortality goes up. And I think it's paramount for the church to be a place of safety, a place where people can come to our leaders and say, I'm not okay. And in that moment, they should be met with love and compassion, not judgment, not condemnation. However, equally, if not more important for the church to know is that it is okay to not be okay. This is my number 10 thing. But it's not okay to stay that way. Like any other physical disease or spiritual attack, depression and other mental health disorders must be met with a fight. We're going to talk about this more here in a bit, but I think it's so important to recognize that if you were to go to an oncologist and like they give you a diagnosis of cancer, they're not going to say, listen, I'm sorry you have cancer, but listen, it's okay that you're not okay. We're just you know, going to be here and this will be your new identity. This will be who you are from here on. You'll be a person who have, has cancer and ultimately cancer will defeat you. There's no oncologist that's going to say that for the most part, unless you know the disease process is really far gone and then it may be talking about comfort care. But for the most part, you've got a young kid that the oncologist finds out has cancer. They're never going to say those things. Rather, it's going to be like, here is the treatment options that we have. Here's what we can do going forward. Here's how we can attack and target these things. Here's the support systems I have available. The same thing has to be true for people who are dealing with depression, other mental disorders that we say, here's the treatment. Here's the options. I'll be there for you. I'll stand beside you. I'll work with you. Um, Whatever we can do to help you out, we want to do it. But I know you're not okay right now, but let's get you to to feeling better. Let's get you to a, a better place. Let's get past this as much as we possibly can. There may be reoccurrences, but in the moment, like we're going to get past this and we're going to get you back to a place of health through support and through good treatment. That brings me to number 11, that I, thing that I think next-gen leaders should know, and that is that therapy is a good option. It is, it is research-based. It is evidence-backed. There are several different kinds of therapy that you can engage in. And a good psychologist will be able to identify what areas you're struggling in and what the most appropriate approach is. But I think I think it's important for us to know that this is is such a good option. The UPCI actually, there are we're getting many more therapists that are engaged in helping to treat people. We actually have some in Oklahoma as well. So if you're if you're going through depression, you're dealing with another mental health disorder know that therapy is a good option. And if you can find a Christian-based therapist, that may be even better because then they can take you to the Bible and be like, here's what the Bible says about you. If that's, if that's your source of confidence, if that's what you understand to be an infallible word from God, taking a Christian to that book and, and letting it speak into their life can be very, very powerful. When we look at other available options, I think I also have to point out, as a psychiatrist, most of what I do is, is medication management. Now, let me say this about medication, though. We definitely live in a world of overprescribing, and I get that. That's not just in psychiatry. That's across the board. Because as Americans, we would much rather take a pill than have to do, do a bunch of extensive lifestyle changes, change our diet, add exercise, get social supports. We love the pill concept in America. So I I 100% get why people are a little more tentative about considering medication because ultimately, you know, every medication has side effects. Every medication has risks. 
But what I will say, number 12 on my list of things that I think next-gen leaders need to know is that sometimes medication is a necessity. It really is. Nobody should be prescribed it without a thorough risk-benefit analysis. However, we must recognize that sometimes we are dealing with life-or-death situations. And I know, you know, if we think about this on a practical term, if someone is having a heart attack and like, like, man, you know that the, the artery is clogged, so we got to do something quick or this person is going to die. So what they do is they start giving them medication. Um, they give them nitro, a beta blocker. They may give them morphine for the pain. And then the next step is just getting them to the cath lab to relieve that blockage. Nobody is going to be like, <laughs> walk up to the, the cardiologist at that moment and be like, hey, listen, maybe we don't do those medications. Maybe we don't take them to the cath lab. Let's just wait a while and kind of see what happens. Nobody's going to do that, right? Then why would we stand in front of a friend who says things like, I don't think I can live anymore like this? At that point, we've reached such a level of severity that at that point, medication is necessary. That does not mean we're going to do just medication. Rather, we're going to, it be, the other stuff becomes even more important. We're going to get people into therapy. We're going to get them social supports. We're going to get them engaged with resources. But we also have to utilize medication at that point. And even really before then, um, we don't want people to just spiral in this disease for a long period of time when we know that we can help them with medication and the other resources as well. It doesn't necessarily mean that people have to stay on medication their entire life. That may be the case, but it's not always. And our goal is if we can, we get them off the medication. So number 13, though, I will say this is very important. Much like we lose people to heart disease, we also lose them to mental health disease. It's a, it's a hard thing. You know, in, in the field that I work, it's I don't necessarily see this all the time, which is nice. It's not as prevalent as, as it would be in some other fields of medicine, but it does happen, and it, it's significantly hard every single time. I like the way that Mickey Mangum at Bot 2023 put it. She said, it's very possible that something needs to be addressed. Very possible. We don't like the labels, especially this one. So we don't talk about it, and we can't come to terms with it, and then we are aghast, and we are mortified, and we are shocked when something happens to one of us. I think it's important for the church to recognize that there are things that we can do to make a difference before it gets to that level. I'm not saying every single one of those things is preventable. It's not. It's like any disease process. We can't prevent every single heart attack. But there are things that we can do to improve this, the chances of not getting to that level. And I think we have to, in this day and age, as leaders, we have to be willing to do whatever we can to implement that preventative care for people. Number 14, I think it's important on the same line of this is that know when to refer. And I will say when it reaches that level, it's time to get mental health professional involved. Or even before then, if people are struggling, it's good to get some, a mental health provider in there early. That doesn't mean that your role as their friend or their minister or their, or their mentor is over. In fact, it's going to be even more important at that time. But don't wait too long. Every, every local region has a spurt, certain crisis numbers that you can call if, or if that's needed. But I think the new national number is probably the easiest to remember for everyone. So if you have someone who's struggling, you're really worried about them, 988 is the new national number that you can reach out to um, and they can get you connected with a mental health provider right away, which I think is super important and a great option to have. 
Number 15 thing, like any other disease of the body, there is an opportunity for the miraculous. I, I think we have to, this is something that as the church, as apostolics, like we don't believe that these things ended. In fact, we know they did not end with Jesus. Rather, his disciples continued to heal people. They continued to heal the sick and they continued to cast out spirits. They did not end when, when Jesus left, but rather those things continued. And even today, we have the opportunity to continue to see miracles take place in people's lives. And I think it's important that we, we make a call for people to come and like, like listen, come and get, get healed, that we also address, sometimes people don't recognize being healed of a disease with their mind. But if we could, if we could say as leaders, listen, you have an opportunity today to be healed <laughs> of other things, but also you have an opportunity to be healed in your mind today. I think it's important for us to make that call. Also, when we're looking specifically at the spirit of heaviness, the scripture tells us that the remedy for that in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 is praise, that we put on a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. It seems counterintuitive, right? Because the last thing that someone with depression wants to do is praise. But when we begin to declare who he is in our darkest moment, the enemy cannot stay. That's one of the reasons that it's so important as next generation leaders that we create an atmosphere of praise on Sunday morning, even when we don't feel like it, because you never know who's going to walk in the door with chains of heaviness. But if the atmosphere is right, then there's an opportunity for the miraculous, for that thing to dissipate off, for those chains to be broken. And that is what we all want to see on a Sunday morning is someone that's coming in. They've been laid up heavy all week long, but when they walk in and they feel the praise and they, they experience the worship, that something happens and they recognize that I don't have to stay like this anymore. Number 16, the last thing that I'm going to talk about here is that while I love seeing divine healing as much as the next guy, I also know that healing does not always come instantaneously. Rather, sometimes God has to take us through a process. A great, great example of this is found in 1 Kings with Elijah. He was one of the greatest prophets ever, right? Um, he had things on his resume like declaring a drought over an entire nation, and then he was fed by ravens while he was hiding out because he declared a drought over an entire nation, prayed for a widow's son, and he came back to life. He called down fire from heaven. He killed some 450 false prophets of Baal, and then he spoke the word and the drought that had been going on ended. Yet, yet, despite all that, he still dealt with serious life-threatening depression. And despite all the miracles that Elijah experienced during his ministry, God did not heal him instantly. But rather, he walked Elijah through a healing process. So hear me on this today. If you are listening today, and you're struggling, I want you to know that God has not forsaken you. Much like he was there for Elijah, he will also be there for you. And to the people who are listening today who know that someone who's struggling or you may deal with someone in the future that is struggling, I want you to know that God wants you to be his hands and feet for those in their time of need to walk them through this healing process, much like he walked Elijah through. When we look at what happened with Elijah we realized that Elijah's depression began with him feeling all alone. And then what he did was he further isolated himself by walking away from his servant, and he went off by himself into the wilderness. However, 
God in his great love saw fit to send an angel to make Elijah get up and eat. <laughs> People who are dealing with depression or other mental disorders, they, they need rest. They need It wasn't a bad thing for Elijah to rest. But they also need someone who isn't afraid to say, listen, we got to get up. We got to get dressed. You got to brush your teeth. And we got to go get some lunch. We got to get some fuel for you. When someone is in their lowest moment, often all they want to do is be alone. But the road to healing requires that they stay engaged in life. Now, this is a lot easier when you have someone in your corner who's not afraid to push you a little bit. And now I said push. And when I say that, I mean push in love and push with empathy. We're not we're not being like getting on to these people or like coming at them really, really hard. That won't work. Rather, we have to be there loving and guiding and empathetic, but also saying, listen, we got to take the next step. After Elijah eats, he goes back to sleep for some time, and then he is awoken again by the angel of the Lord and instructed to eat and get ready for a journey. So it was an ongoing process, right? Continued struggles at this stage are okay. And recognize it's going to take a while, but we have to be willing to be in there for the long haul. Once Elijah got up, he left, he goes on a 40-day journey to Mount Horeb, and once he reaches the mountain, Scripture says that the word of the Lord came to him, and the question was asked, what are you doing here? To which Elijah responded by pouring out all of his anger, all his frustration, and his fear to God. And it sounds kind of whiny, but the reality is this, when you're in depression, you need this, and there's no better place to pour out to than God. It's so important not to neglect prayer during this time, even if it has to look different. Brother Carlton Kuhn in his book talks about times when he was too depressed to even find the words to say. So instead, what he did is he would read the Psalms. This is also a great way to battle the spirit of fear because the Psalms are full of scripture. What they do is they challenge fear. Psalms 23 and 4 says things like, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not fear evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will say as well, though, that during the healing process, in addition to having God to talk to, people need friends. They need family that will be there to listen. They're not always looking for your advice. We're just advice people. We love to give our opinion. But sometimes when someone's just really down, they don't need your advice. But what they do need is they need you to come along beside them and to stand with them and to listen to them and engage with them. It's so important just to kind of have someone you can release your concerns and your worries and what your frustrations to. Then, as if Elijah had not already had enough cool moments with God, he tells him to go out and stand on the mountain that he would pass by. So Elijah goes out and scripture tells us that a powerful wind that shattered rocks went by but God wasn't in the wind, and then a tremendous earthquake took place, but God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire came, but the Lord was not in the fire. Then a still, small voice came, and there was God. And all of this time, Elijah had felt alone. He assumed that all the other prophets were dead and that he was the only one left, but that was a lie that the enemy had wanted him to believe. And it's a lie that people who suffer from depression easily fall into. But God corrected the lie in Elijah's life by telling him that there are 7,000 that he had reserved who had not bowed the knee to Baal or Asherah. And today what I want to do is I want to speak against that lie as well. The enemy has told some of you guys or your family or your friends that they're alone and no one cares. But that is not the truth. 
Listen, across our organization, people are beginning to speak up and about what they're facing and what they've gone through. As a result, there is momentum. And what we need now more than ever to capitalize on this momentum is next-gen leaders who will reach out to those who are struggling and say things like, I'll pray over the phone with you. I'll intercede for you. I'll fast for you. I'll drive you to therapy. I'll get up early and exercise with you. I'll be your shoulder to cry on. I'll, I'll be the one that's there to help push you to get up, get dressed, and get out the door. I'll be there for you in what you need because you are not alone. And after God spoke with Elijah and revealed that he was not alone, Elijah was given a task that required him to go anoint kings. In essence, what happened was that Elijah was sent back to do what prophets do. Elijah was sent back to his calling. I want to encourage you today that as the healing process comes to an end, there will be a time when you or those that you have been helping along the way will boldly enter back into your calling and purpose. Hear this, if you are currently facing or caring for someone that is facing mental health issues, I want you to know this, that it will not destroy your calling. Being sick does not destroy the calling that God has on your life. In fact, we know in scripture, Hebrews 4 and 15 says, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. For that reason, he understood what you're, what you're going through. He understands what you're facing and what you're going to deal with. And for that reason, he took the stripes on his back and he bore the crown of thorns on his head, not just for the healing of your heart disease, or your lung disease, or your asthma, or the cancer that comes on, not just for that, but he also bore those stripes and wore that crown for the healing of our minds. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me for a short period of time to kind of learn more about mental health and to better understand how we can target it and what we can do to help people that are going through it. I hope this has been beneficial. If there's anything that I can do to help guide you further, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You guys have an awesome day. listening with us today. Make sure to subscribe to the Oklahoma Next Gen Leaders podcast and social media so you can stay up to date on our newest content. Until next time, we pray this episode ignites something within you.